Welcome to the February 2024 episode of RCV Clips, our podcast about all things ranked choice voting. I'm Chris Hughes, a member of the Resource Center staff. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Stephanie Ganoza, Elections Director for Boulder County, Colorado, about the groundbreaking ranked choice voting risk limiting audit they ran there last fall. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll just start with that. It's not every day uh, I get to brag about our team uh, being the first to achieve something nationally. Yeah, it's so exciting. Well, so I really want to talk about that, but I actually sort of want to start a bit earlier to get everybody who's listening up to speed. So we've talked about it a couple of times on the podcast before, but can you just quickly define for our listeners what a risk limiting audit is? Sure. Um, So a risk limiting audit is a post-election audit uh, that provides a statistical level of confidence um, that the outcome of the election is correct. So said slightly differently, every time we perform one, um, we're able to say that there is a high probability um, that the reported winners accurately reflected how voters marked their ballots. I imagine you have to explain that a lot to people. (laughs) Um, It's definitely a, uh, yes, short answer, Uh, slightly, um, slightly longer answer is um, yes. um, And it, it definitely creates a bit of a head scratch for people sometimes on um, how is this different from just a general audit? Do you do other types of audits? And and the short answer in those aspects is um, we don't do other types of audits. Um, We only perform the risk limiting audit um, when it comes to ballots in Colorado. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other topic, a podcast episode, but the concept, like there's so many ways you can audit an election, not just the tabulation of the results, but like the processes and all of that. But we're here today to talk about risk limiting audits, so I'll stay focused on that for now. Um, so, you know, this, we'll get to it in a bit, but this was, you all ran the first risk limiting audit of ranked choice voting, but you've been doing risk limiting audits in Colorado for a bit. Can you talk about the timeline, how that started, how long it's been going? Yeah, so I can, um, I'm going to do a brief history, um, because the history is definitely longer uh, than I've been a participant in it. Colorado as a state has conducted post election audits um, for every state and federal election since 2005, um, and moved to risk limiting audits, um, starting in 2017. In, in around 2009, um, there was a, uh, I'd say maybe an advocacy group, if you will, that spearheaded legislative changes um, to require risk limiting audits. So in 2009, that went into statute, um, which then led to um, really years, nearly a decade of um, research, um, discussions, working groups, and pilots to get um, or really to arrive at 2017, where then Colorado was able to say that they completed the first statewide RLA. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's interesting to hear about because it did. I remember hearing about it right after it got adopted, in, I think, in Colorado. And it took, you know, you you all took your time because you had to take your time because Colorado was the first state to really be taking this project on. There was just so much work to do to make it a reality. Yeah, yeah. Especially it, it feels um, easy now um, because we've been doing a risk limiting audit on our plurality contests now, you know, one to three times a year since 2017. Um, so it feels just business as usual at this point. And it is sometimes easy to forget all the decisions that had to be made along the way. What was the right methodology to use? What are the right, uh, and we'll talk about this more, I think, but what are the right risk limits to set, right? So what's that level of confidence that we need to be at to feel that the audit's giving us the value we need? Yeah. Well, can you talk a bit about, you know, practically, what does it take to run an RLA, a risk limiting audit in general in Colorado? How do you get all the pieces together to do that? 
Yeah, so um, it, it'll be a little different um, for the RCV one that Boulder ran um, since uh, it wasn't statewide and it was run by Boulder, not the Secretary of State. But in terms of what generally happens, which we did try to adhere to as much as we could, the audit in Colorado is run at the county level. So the county and their audit boards execute the auditing. Um, however, the process and the software and the programming is run at the state level. So the state defines um, at the start um, or during an election a risk limit. Currently, Colorado has been setting a 3% risk limit. Um, and so what that means is you know, 97 out of 100 times, um, the audit will catch an incorrect outcome. Um, so there's that 3% risk um, that exists. The state then also selects target contests. Um, so when we perform the audit, we're not auditing every contest on every ballot. Um, they pick target contests, um, one statewide um, and one uh, local to each county. Um, and then they, uh, we provide, actually we, not they, uh, provide um, our list of ballots um, that were counted this election, so our ballot manifest. They then uh, create a random seed. So they roll a 20-sided dice to come up with the random seed number, um, which then is applied to all of the county ballot manifests to select the sampled ballots. Once the state provides us with our sample list, um, we have bipartisan teams referred to as audit boards who um, go uh, find those ballots in our storage boxes, pull those original paper ballots, enter the votes from those paper ballots into the state software. The state software then compares those those entered votes to the voting system record um, that every county um, has also submitted to the state. And we see uh, variations in terms of the number of ballots um, that we have to sample. So, you know, to overly simplify, a smaller margin in a result in the results leads to more ballots being sampled. Um, and then, you know, a smaller risk limit could also lead to more ballots being sampled. And the um, sort of the, the matrix of how those two interact um, is where we land at how many ballots to test or sample. Right. So it's sort of, you're not going to ever audit the exact same number of ballots from contest to contest or year to year, right? It varies. No. It's mm -hmm. very dependent on the particular contest. Yeah, it's varied on the contest. Um, and um, because it's like of statistical significance, right, it also varies by the county size. So larger counties who have more ballots counted audit more. Uh, than smaller counties who have fewer ballots counted. So in Boulder, just for some context, we've uh, been averaging for an RLA somewhere between 100 to 150 ballots for for each of our November elections. And that's when you're auditing both like a statewide and a countywide contest? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. And and you all are, what, the second largest county in the state? We are not. We're, oh, I don't know the number off the top of my head. Uh, we're probably closer to like six or seven. We're, uh, sometimes we're considered a moderately sized county, um, but we like to think of ourselves as a large county. Right. <laughs> you want to punch above your weight. Yeah, we're just, we're just below that cusp. Um, we're at uh, around, around 223-ish thousand, 25-ish thousand registered voters. And um, in some ways, the next tiers are really closer to 250, right? So Colorado has this sort of um, a handful of very large counties over that 250, closer to that 400 mark, 300 mark. Um, and then there's like only two or three of us in that, you know, 100 to 200,000 range. Uh, and then you jump, you know, all the way down to like, you know, 5,000 and less. Right. Like the Western counties are quite mm -hmm. small. And the Eastern yeah. counties. Yeah. Some of the mountain counties too. Mm, I believe it. I, I feel like learning about all these different aspects of like the structure of the counties and how you all relate to each other and your size and how that impacts your work processes, all that stuff is so interesting. We don't have time to go into all of it. So that's risk limiting audits. And now I want to spend a little time talking about ranked choice voting, and then we'll dive into the meat of the episode. This is called burying the lead. But 
it's too late. We've done it already. So can you talk a bit about the timeline of ranked choice voting in Boulder when it got adopted and, and your timeline for actually implementing it, getting it up and running? Yeah, so I'll start, um, I'll start at a high level. And then if we want to go uh, deeper into the timeline, let me know and we can do a second, we can do a second pass on that. City of Boulder um, voters in 2020 approved uh, a ballot measure that changed the city of Boulder's charter, um, which changed um, the way the city elects their mayor, um, both to direct election and election via ranked choice voting. The timeline for that is what led us to the first election being in 2023. Um, the cycle for that mayoral, for that mayoral election. Um, so, you know, in late 2020, we knew it was coming, <laughs> you could say, but in, in some ways it, um, it was a little too early to, to do any kind of, you know, process development work. This is a, a slight tangent, but state statute and rules change annually. If not, um, rules can change two times a year, even sometimes. There's sometimes a, a just-in-time piece where if you do too much work um, and you don't know if there's going to be upcoming legislative changes, um, you could have to redo work. So in thinking about knowing that ranked choice was coming, um, in 2021, there was a, I'm going to say, a, a group effort, both between um, us as an interested county that knew we had to do it from the Secretary of State's office and then um, legislators to bring statute up to a place where it contemplated how a county would implement a ranked choice voting election within the bounds of the rest of the Colorado uh, election system. Um, so there's a big legislative change in 2021. And then um, we really started in earnest our county's um, preparation in the winter of 2022. So we did pretty much a full year of preparation and implementation um, from around December 2022 through November 2023. Well, and can you talk a little bit about... So there's the city of Boulder and the county of Boulder. And I'll admit it's not 100% clear to me the distinction slash relationship between them. So can you talk a bit about that and how the city opted into this, but the county was responsible for it? Municipalities um, or special districts. So anyone that might need to conduct an election in Colorado, depending on how their charter, what set of statutes they're chartered or governed by. Some of them conduct their own elections. Many, many of them coordinate with the county. Um, and the county provides the election administration. So the county executes the election on behalf of the municipality. Um, so in the city of Boulder case, um, the city of Boulder does not run any of their own elections. Um, anytime they have a, um, a council member election um, or a ballot measure, they coordinate, we call it coordinating with the county, um, and the county then executes the election. So the county has um, both the experience, um, but also the infrastructure, um, right? We have the voting system, right? We have all, all the sort of uh, nuts and bolts, if you will, to execute an election under Colorado law, um, you know, that the city of Boulder doesn't have in place. Um, so instead of them building it, right, they, um, they essentially contract with us to execute the election on their behalf. Um, so when it comes to like content of what gets on the ballot, um, that is entirely governed by the city. We don't take a role in um, how does a candidate access a ballot or is the ballot language, is the petition valid? Do they have, um, can it go on? Can it not? Um, that's all governed at the city level. And then we apply all Colorado statute to what do you do when, um, how do you count those votes? How do you uh, get ballots to people? Right. So to potentially simplify it a bit too much, but you are maybe a little more front facing in the county is a little bit more in the like background technical side nuts and bolts? Yes and no, I'm going to say. I would yeah. say, um, <laughs> so from a voter's perspective in Colorado, um, it looks like the county is in charge. And I say that because when we mail ballots, you get ballots from the county. 
Um, the ballot comes from the county. If you wanted to come on a tour and see our operations, that comes from the county. Um, all the information about where do I vote? How do I register? All of that is governed at the county level. So from a voter's perspective, um, they, I think, have an assumption that the county in some ways controls every aspect of the election. And I, I think they, um, the more people have gotten interested in elections, the more I think our voters have started to understand that breakdown. Suffice to say, it's a complex relationship. <laughs> it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, in, in, in some ways, the, it, it was complicated more with the RCV because it was a new, it was new, right? Voters um, don't know and didn't know a lot about RCV before this year. Uh, maybe, you know, some had hobbies, some had interests, and maybe were reading about it. But um, I don't know that a majority of our county voters had knowledge or could have explained what they were about to see. Yeah, well, so can you talk then a bit about, you know, you said you all had about a year of prep and sort of startup time because all the legal issues at the state level got sorted out. Can you talk a bit about, you know, what felt like the big projects you all were going to have in front of you as you were getting ready for ranked choice voting? So the first thing, so I'll start with the first thing we did, which then I'll sort of color a little bit about how we structured our year, which is the first thing we started with was what are all the process components um, and things that need to change? How is RC, what needs, what is going to change either because of RCB um, or because of um, a voter education component, let's say, right? We did that assessment across our sort of end-to-end election. And then we created, um, I think, if you will, like work streams, right? Um, so our, our sort of our big ticket things um, were voter education, which encompassed everything from uh, pre-election prep for people. So City of Boulder newsletters, mailings, videos, um, all the way to like instructions that came with, with individual ballots to voters' doorsteps. We also um, had a workshop around ballot design and layout. So what was someone going to see? Um, was it clear? Was it confusing? Um, what would the instructions tell them? Where would they go if they had questions <laughs> um, of what happens if I vote X way or Y way? Um, is my vote counted? Is my vote not counted? What happens if I do A and B, but I don't like Joe, so I don't want to vote for Joe at all? Um, so ballot layout and design um, was the second big piece. A third big piece was our results reporting. So what were people going to then see? Um, what were they going to see on election night when results are still unofficial? Um, what were they going to see in the the next several days um, as more um, ballot results were added to the total? Um, and how would they understand how in ranked choice, those the shifting of votes happens with vote transfers, which doesn't exist in plurality? So what tooling would we use? What reports would we provide to meet that that level of transparency so somebody could understand what they were seeing and why it was changing? We then, of course, had the uh, RLA piece. So just really, you know, the entire work stream around what was our risk limiting audit going to look like. And then there were sort of, um, I think, in all those areas, sort of extra little pieces here and here and there. The risk limiting audit piece um, is probably the piece that we had a lot of support um, from people who had ideas um, and had guidance on, on what they wanted to see and what they thought people could do. Um, but we probably had the least the least number of examples to go from. Um, for voter education and for, you know, even ballot design and things, there are other jurisdictions nationally that have been executing a ranked choice voting election. So we had samples. Some of the, some of the groups have done white papers and like done research and polled people right on what's the right format. Um, so we had a lot in those spaces. We had to tailor it to Colorado, but we had a ton of examples to go by. The risk limiting audit was one where we had to create a lot on our own, and the state uh, state law and rule was actually um, fairly silent on on how how to audit a ranked choice voting election. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm about to dive in on that. I just want to like give you all kudos because I think your whole implement, like your implementation from end to end was great. You all followed best practices top to bottom in running this election and also ran it on hard mode by having to do a risk limiting audit at the end. I was just really impressed and like excited to see you all doing a great job of with voter education, with ballot design, and especially with results reporting, because I think that's a place where people are still getting comfortable with RCV. And so there's some people who have the instinct of let's wait to produce results. Let's because, you know, I, I understand the hesitation in terms of like it is a there's more happening under the hood here and there's more explaining you need to do with voters. But it seems like greater transparency like you all did with unofficial results early and often on election night and thereafter, I think helps with your transition a lot. So that was really cool to see. So I just wanted to give you all kudos for all the work you put into like making that work right for voters. Thanks. So with that, all that prelude, we are now at risk limiting audits of ranked choice voting. Like you were just hinting at, you all are actually the first jurisdiction as far as I know, in the world to actually run a single winner ranked choice voting risk limiting audit of a governmental election, right? Of like your actual real world election results. People have run risk limiting audits after the fact, after results are certified. People have run them of internal party elections, but no one has ever done it following all the rigors and processes of a governmental run election. So <laughs> that makes you groundbreakers. That makes it, that also meant you had a very difficult task. It makes us easy targets also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, I'm curious to hear more of, a bit more about that. But So can you just talk about, you know, how you all approached that question of how you actually get this audit up and running? I mean, I think I, I hinted at it. And I think you did also. I mean, I, I do want to go back to we did decide to do the risk limiting audit. We were not we are, are not and we're not required to. Colorado statute and rule requires that an RCV contest is audited. And it doesn't specify anything beyond that sentence. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even, I'm kidding, but I'm not, right? It literally says you must conduct an audit. And so, I mean, in some ways, the first question that we tackled was, will we do an RLA or not? Or will we do some other version of auditing? We did feel that one, it was definitely the best choice to go for the RLA. We also felt that with the experience we had from plurality contests in Colorado, we had a lot of policy and framework already around how to do NRLA. So all of those details weren't tailored to RCV in particular. Um, but when it came to sort of the guiding principles and the components of conducting an RLA, since um, we had experience with that, and we'd been doing it um, for our plurality contests, in some ways early on, it seemed like how hard could the lift be to do it for RCV also? <laughs> And so, I mean, we did make that decision pretty quickly. And it, I, I just do want to highlight that it was a conscious decision for us. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm very glad that you all made that decision. I'm curious, we've spent some time at the Resource Center researching risk limiting audits just so we can understand how they work and, you know, what, what they mean for ranked choice voting, because we get asked questions about that sort of across the country. But at the same time, we are not risk limiting audits experts. I'm not a statistician. I'm not a software developer. And those are the two things you seem to really, really need expert support on for a risk limiting audit is someone who can really break down the statistics of, well, you have to do this step first, so you can do that step, so you can do that step, so you can do that step, so that it's all trustworthy and holds up. And you need a software developer who can build tool, build software that actually allows you to implement you know, the 
pretty sophisticated statistical algorithms that are underlying this risk limiting audit. So I'm, I, I'd love to hear more about how you all worked on that, how you identified the people to bring in on this project and sort of pull those resources together so that you could actually run this audit. I think so. You're, I, I will just echo, I think you're, you're definitely right um, around the two hardest components of you know, planning, developing, and then executing the RLA was were about what is going to be the sampling logic, right? So what's what's all that um, that math under the hood, um, and then how do we get that into a tool that allows our bipartisan team members to enter choices blindly, um, and then have the tool do the comparison so that right we met some of those um, those wrapper standards, right? Where we didn't want a scenario where somebody could see the results still and then do their entry, right? Because then you sort of lost the the independence of an audit. <laughs> when we started down this path, um, we did start. Um, we started with a couple folks um, that were really outside that space. So we had started with the Center for Civic Design. Um, so we started with Whitney Queensbury and Emma Warren Winowski. Um, the other folks we started with, um, so a couple of former Colorado clerks, Jennifer Morell and Amber Reynolds, Amber Mick Reynolds, um, and they helped us sort of uh, bound ourselves just in the whole space. So here are the jurisdictions that have done stuff. Here is, um, here's resource. Here's resources. Here's people who have investigated this. Here are insights. Here are examples of examples of tools or examples of content that others have produced. Um, so we really started there as a like, who could we talk to? Where do we go? How do we make this happen? Jennifer is who then sort of helped us get to, um, in contact with, um, with San Francisco. And then, and sort of through that, uh, Michelle, um, Blom and Vanessa Teague. Um, and so they, and I'm gonna, I don't want to try to uh, create anyone's credentials for them. Um, but they are sort of the, um, the brains <laughs> uh, behind really the only kind of software that does exist. So, um, it's called Rare or Shangri-La. So that is open source. Um, and they are some of the brains, um, behind that solution. Um, so we had started meeting with them around, we're hearing there's a solution, but like, what is it? Is it code? Is it code that we have to just like run on a command prompt line? Is it a software? Is there like a user interface? Right. So we started going down all these like, in some ways, really basic questions at the outset to even start to frame out what existed versus what did we need to build? Philip Stark, Michelle Vanessa and Philip really provided that really that statistician um, expertise to us. They provided us guidance on sort of how, how the math, they explained the math to us several, several times <laughs> as to how does the math work. You know, they've done work and training with us on what does the math output look like? What are some ways you can think about how the math works? So you can um, attempt to create sort of some type of mental image or map as to what's happening when a sample is being selected. But we did, we, we really relied on them to, to give us that guidance. We then in, in some ways took their, really their like sampling code, right? For, um, a, a sort of a simplified way of saying it and worked with, um, a local technology firm, um, that we have a partnership with rule four. And they helped us sort of create that, um, that software wrapper. So how do we get from a code for sampling to, um, we input our ballot manifest. We input the sample seed that is then processed by the code. It then spits out the actual samples. Um, those samples are then given to board members. Those board members um, enter the votes in a different screen. And then the software does the final comparison to produce a comparison report so that our audit board um, and our, our Canvas board can say, oh, we see the comparison. We see that the comparison matches, right? And therefore the audit 
you know, passes, if you will. And so while our team, I mean, we, um, we had a project manager, um, fully dedicated, um, to this, this whole cycle. And then we had our staff team members, um, that run each of our processing operations, um, involved. So in this case, um, our scan room and voting systems team really took the lead with Michelle, Vanessa and Philip on, okay, well, this is our output. You know, how does it interact? Here are samples. So lots of testing, um, lots of in some ways trial and error on that. This is what the Colorado voting system produces. It was not exactly the same, um, different versions of voting systems, different versions of output. So uh, accounting for those kinds of changes. And then we um, had tried to adhere. Um, so our, our baseline standard was to adhere as close to the plurality process in Colorado as we could. Um, so when it came to the question of well, what do we want our audit report to look like, we, you know, we erred on um, similar and certain identical in substance, similar in format to what we produce for plurality. Yeah, that makes like, you know, you want to have that continuity for people, right? So it, it, it is still different, right? Obviously highlight, you know, we've checked rankings. We haven't checked individual votes in a contest, but, you know, the more continuity there is, the less, I think the simpler it will be for people to understand. Simpler doing a lot of work in that sentence. I mean, the audit process, um, that a, you know, that our audit board, um, our bipartisan judges participated in, in that lens was, you know, basically identical. Right. They, they took, they, um, they had a paper ballot. They, um, visually, you know, of their own eyes observed those votes and recorded those votes into the audit tool, which was then compared to what the voting system recorded. Which is like, you're saying quite similar to the process for plurality. I mean, that way it's, it's identical, right? Um, the real difference, um, came down to the sampling math, right? The sampling math for RCV in order to arrive at the same confidence level is much more complicated because the math is considering and I'm I'm going to I'm going to overly simplify this. Um so if you want something way more complicated on the math side it's not going to be with me but really um the math is accounting for the fact that vote transfers happen. Right? So the the, the math and that your sample size has to account for the idea that candidates are getting eliminated throughout the process and you know, the more eliminations you have, the more vote transfers you have, depending on which way your margins go between which candidates are eliminated and your first place. That's you're, you're so you're almost validating in that math way more number comparisons and margins than occurs in a plurality RLA. Yeah, the way I think about it is like there's in ranked choice voting, there's just so many universes of possibility, right? The more candidates there are, the more votes that are cast the more possible ways, the more different orders there could be of candidates who got eliminated. And a risk limiting audit wants to check, like, what's the most vulnerable part of that round by round counting process? Where is the place where things could really, really be different if this person got eliminated instead of that person? And that's, it seems to me like that's where risk limiting audits are like laser focused in on for ranked choices. Like, what are the most like consequential bits of this process? And it's just... Because there's so many universes of possibility, it, it, the computation, the like math of it is what I think computer scientists call NP hard. That's a, a phrase I learned from reading Michelle's papers. And I know that it sounds hard, uh, <laughs> but that's, that is fundamentally the thing that makes a risk limiting audit of any ranked choice voting thing computationally complicated because there's so many of these universes of possibility. You need to build an algorithm that can like sort through all that information 
efficiently. And it's just, there's so much information to sort through. <laughs> so in that, just to give you some uh, other, like, I think, operational context, um, we ended up auditing nearly double the number of ballots in the RCV sample um, than we did um, for the state target contests at the same risk limit. Do you have a sense of why that is? Like, you would you say it's down to ranked choice voting? It boils down to, I think, some of what you were, I think, just describing, which is the margins, right? So the margin, so the number of candidates we had in our RCV race, and then the margins between them and the order of elimination. And so I think just that math resulted in more ballots needing to prove the outcome of the winner. I think a wider margin, if we had had a, I mean, just if we had had a wider margin race, you know, similar to plurality, we, we would have had less ballots to sample. Right, because the mayoral was pretty competitive, is my sense. Um, especially between first and second. We saw that, you know, early returns are always just early returns. Um, but we did see, um, we did see changes in who was in first and second through early returns, um, or our first rounds of returns, I should say. And with that, I think the, you know, the question of when third and fourth places votes were going to be transferred, could it change? Um, the numbers were at a point where if fourth or third, you know, if all of their votes had gone to second place, I think second place could have come out ahead. Which, yeah, makes it so you got to you got to look at more of those paper ballots then if you want to really check that result. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, norm- you were talking about the coordination normally for a risk limiting audit in Colorado is the state sort of holds the software and there's this like sort of communication, this back and forth between the county and the state. As the county gets information, it goes to the state. The state says, okay, we're good, or actually you need to audit more. I gather that in this instance, the county was sort of taking the lead on the development. How does does the tool that you all had to create fit directly into the state's auditing program now? Or is that, how is the state involved is my first question, I think. And then my second question is, how is this fitting in with the overall process? I think to start with the question of how was the state involved um, in 2023, um, I mean, the simple answer is they were not. So we were happy to, um, you know, have discussions with them and and get feedback from them as well. Um, But when it came to like the actual tooling and the interaction of data and the the production of the audit reports, all of that was county only. Um, So when it came to the RCV contest, all of the RCV data exchanges, um, reporting, et cetera, was all um, housed county. There was nothing that went to the state and came back to the county. When it comes to, I think, a bit forward looking, I mean, I think so we've um, we've shared with the state and to the extent possible um, publicly all of the code and wrapping that we used and built. And so our, you know, I think a bit of our hope and a bit of our understanding is some of that development and time that was invested or that we invested as, you know, the first uh, county to go um, the state will be able to leverage um, and then potentially integrate into their tooling so that in future years, um, and I think the timeline is somewhere around 25, 26, um, where the state's required to support a statewide RCV race, um, that they're able to take all or most of what we already created or at least started to create and wrap that into their tool so that when, if there ever is a statewide race, when or if there ever is a statewide race for most counties, right, that there won't be this uh, research investment, right? There won't be this this build investment. I mean, it sounds like was probably the simplest way to go through this, right? Not to try and you, you eat an elephant one bite at a time and 
risk limiting audits of ranked choice voting, risk limiting audits in general, like you definitely, I think, need to adhere to that philosophy. There's a lot of work you can be doing. There's always more scaling up you could do, but it seems like, you know, starting at the county level, working out a lot of the kinks is probably the right way to go. (laughs) You mentioned already that, you know, you were working with these developers over the course of the year. When did development wrap up? When did you feel like, okay, we're sort of in production, ready to go to run this audit? It was late. It was probably close to two weeks before the audit. Uh, this is not by any means to diminish um, all of the work that we you know, were able to leverage from others. But the work to really like package it and make it into a um, some form, and I'm saying some form because it was by no means a polished tool. The work to package it into something that we could explain to our judges and our audit board members, and it would instill confidence to anyone seeing it took, I think, longer than we expected, right? So getting to that place where the, 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 the pieces of the program, you know, connected with each other and, um, in some ways, like automatically took the next process step. Some of those things, we still had more manual intervention. Then I think you would, um, then you would want in a statewide like audit tool. Um, so there were definitely, um, so we, we sort of made a cutoff point on these are the series of process steps that we're willing to manually do. And it was more than I think we would want in the future. Well, I, I remember talking to people or anytime I talk to people about a risk limiting audit, it seems like the user experience and getting people to feel comfortable with the tool, but also trust it, right? Cause it's doing all these. Uh, calculations in the background is truly the challenge is it's all that trust building work that takes that means you need to distill high level statistical concepts or like very expert statistical concepts to something that's pretty digestible for the average person. And I, I gather that's true both of risk limiting audits, like just communicating that to the public and like you're saying, you know, working with your people on your audit board who are, you know, pretty much regular everyday people. Oh, absolutely. Right. They're, they're great people, but they're not statisticians either. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's a good, I think, best practice for everybody knowing going forward, like this is doing that work. The trust building is just takes a lot of investment. So I had a couple of questions. I, I feel like we've covered a lot of these. You know, what was the same as previous RLAs? Right. You said for the auditor, for the person entering into fields functionally identical, the big change was in the development process and getting this tool up and running. So like I said, we, we tried to adhere as close as possible. So um, it was post-election, I, I think, in the end. Um, but we did release you know, uh, the software. for So kept tried to keep to the open source um, standard of releasing um, all the code and the math that was used. We used the uh, SOS's um, random seed. Right. So instead of creating our own, we just used theirs. It, it, it took one piece out of, you know, county hands and let us rely on like, one piece outside to say, right, we didn't also, there was less opportunity for there to be perception questions of, did you pick your seed? Did you, right? Did you know which ballots were in which order? Um, so that took one step away from it. And we used the same risk limit, um, that state is, that uses statewide. Um, we still, you know, randomly selected samples and we still compared those paper votes to, um, the voting system record. Um, so the software that was used was different and the math to pick the sampling ballots was different, but nearly everything else was mirrored very closely. Yeah. And how, how did the actual, like on the day of, how did things go? So they went, I mean, they went great. They went faster and in, and in some ways even um, smoother um, than we had expected. 
we completed um, the RCV RLA in um, roughly half the time um, that we had, you know, planned for or planned to need. Um, and we also had zero discrepancies, right? Which is really the the primary goal. So even if it had taken a little longer, um, that zero discrepancy point um, was really the, you know, the 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 standard that we were just, you know, looking for. I think a piece of that though was attributable to the prep time that our county team put in. The county team did um, we did dry runs, so um, we had other team members use the software, give feedback. Was it intuitive? The team members that actually present that day did dry runs of if I explain it this way, does it make sense? Um, if we explain it this way, does it make sense? Are the slides confusing? Right. So we did a, a, a significant amount of prep time and practice as to how exactly was that day going to go? And um, did people practice the answer of how to explain something simply when it's really complicated? <laughs> Like the, honestly, the constant challenge of folks who work on ranked choice voting too, right? Like there's so many ways to make it complicated and the simpler you can make it, the better it is for everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm going to ask one last question and then I'll let you go. So could you describe the ranked choice voting risk limiting audit, audit experience in three words or less? It was challenging. It was collaborative uh, and it was successful. Amazing. Well, thanks again. This was really great. I learned a lot. I hope uh, our listeners did as well. Uh, and keep up the good work. I I'm, cannot say enough good things about the work you all did on, on your elections last year. Oh, thank you. We strive for a lot. Um, we strive for a great voter experience. Um, we strive to meet transparency standards and expectations of the public. Um, and you know, we don't we don't always meet everyone's, but we really do. That's really what we're we're constantly improving on. Um, and looking for ways to enhance. Um, and so this was just another way that we got to share more with everyone about what we're doing. And now for this month's final round, where we share an interesting bit of trivia, a useful tidbit, or just something we thought was cool for folks to know about ranked choice voting. Here's Kelly Seacrest with this month's final round. You just heard how risk-limiting audits of single-winner RCV contests are happening in the U.S., a major step forward. But did you know that risk-limiting audits of proportional RCV are in development now? This type of RLA has not been possible in the past, but processes for auditing two-seat proportional RCV, the simplest form of PRCV, are being refined now. Once that's complete, researchers will begin building methods for auditing larger contests, starting with three-seat PRCV and aiming for four-, five-, and six-seat contests. This major statistical undertaking makes it this month's final round. Thank you for joining us today for our February 2024 RCV Clips episode produced by the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to the show for the latest episodes and updates. And please take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about RCVRC and Ranked Choice Voting, check out our website, www.rcvresources.org. The production of this podcast is supported by the generosity of our donors. Donations can be made directly on the website. And please don't hesitate to contact us with any donation questions at donate at rcvresources.org. If you have a few minutes, fill out the listener survey linked in the show notes for this episode. The survey is short and only takes a few minutes of your time. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas. Thanks. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RCV Resources and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at RCVRC. 
Our theme music is Flutterbee by Pottington Bear. Until next time, I'm Chris on behalf of the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center.